Hello, my name is Ken Forrest, and I'm going to be teaching the Wednesday evening Bible class for the Boonville Church of Christ in Boonville, Mississippi. Tonight's lesson, We Must Uphold the Truth, is the third lesson in our series titled, Some Things a Church Must Do. I want to start from 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. It says, But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Some have argued that the Bible's too old to be relevant and doesn't meet the needs of our time. But I'll tell you that I believe the most pragmatic argument against such reasoning is that the Bible is true and relevant because it works in our lives. It makes us better people. It brings us a happier life. The Bible is powerful in its own right. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the scripture there says that the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. In James chapter 1, beginning at verse 21, James says, Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself and goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. I'm certain, and I want to convince you so that you'll have this certainty, that the relevancy of the Bible will not surprise us when we consider it, as it were, the instruction manual from the Maker. Now, we, as the church uphold the truth simply because it is the Word of God. I know what many people want to do. Many people want to point to nature as being a great testimony of the presence of God. And of course you can do that. Psalm 19 starts this way. It says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. I get that. I can look at nature and know that there is God. But you understand that nature has serious limitations. It can't reveal the personality or the expectations of the Creator. Psalm 8 says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you've ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you visit him? For you've made him a little lower than the angels and you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've made him to have dominion over the work of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, 
even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. It's interesting, as much as this passage, according to the book of Hebrews, is pointing to Jesus as being the source of that uh, incredible description of separation between the angels and man and God elevating man. That is done through Jesus. But Fontaine, uh, Matthew Fontaine Murray was so impressed with what he read, technical details of this text, that he actually believed that the Bible was revealing a mystery. When he read about, in verse 8, those paths of the sea, he was intrigued. And so he thought, you know what, I'll find out if that's true. Are there paths in the sea? Well, through his research and charting, he discovered many channels through the ocean currents, and he documented them. He did oceanic charts, the first of its kind. And now in Richmond, Virginia, there is a statue in honor of Matthew Fontaine Murray. In one hand, he has all of the equipment necessary for charting, but in the other hand, an open Bible to Psalm number 8. Because that passage, as far as he was concerned, revealed a mystery that just needed to be brought to light. Oh, the Bible, so, so far as that's concerned, is intriguing in that it matches up with what we see in nature. But the Bible's much more than that. It isn't just a backup to the tribute that nature gives to God. What we believe about the Bible, in a reasonable sense is that if God is a personal God, and he is, it seems only natural that he'd reveal himself to his creation, not just in a general way, as is true in nature, but in a very personal way. And I believe that the personal way that God revealed himself to us was through his Son. In Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, the scripture says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. You can boil this passage down to a simple statement, and that is that God has spoken through his Son. And what has he said? What has he revealed? Well, John chapter 1, it kind of brings to light some of those things. It says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was uh, was with God, the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then verse 14, there's this. The word, uh, that which he'd been speaking about from the very beginning, the word, he says, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That word that became flesh and dwelt among us was Jesus. When people looked at Jesus, when we read about the descriptions of Jesus, what we see is the glory 
of the only begotten of the Father, who was full of grace and truth. Now, God has also chosen to reveal himself, not only through his son, but he's revealed his will to man through human instruments. And what I mean by a human instrument is an inspired writer. In 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning verse 16, Peter says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter's telling us, look, what, what we have spoken, what I have spoken in particular, is not from me. You know, I didn't develop that or make it up. This is a revelation of God, and it testifies to the fact of Jesus being the Son of of God. And then Galatians chapter 1 verses 11 and 12, Paul basically saying the same thing, what I speak and I'm denoting as inspiration is not from me, it is directly from a divine source. He says, but I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from men nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. It has to be true, doesn't it, that a written revelation is its the most reliable way to communicate because it's, it's concrete. I, I, can, I can look at it. I can review it. I believe, and I hope you will come to believe, that the Bible, as far as that reliable means of communication, the Bible is that perfect and preserved will of God for man, for you, for me. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You want to know how to be the person God wants you to be? It comes through the scriptures inspired by God, directly from God. It can make you a different person in all sorts of ways as described in this verse. Also, Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, kind of the follow-up to the statement in chapter 1 about Jesus being all in all. He says, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. How are we going to escape if we neglect that? And what he's, what he's saying is, I mean, this is undeniable. So if you deny this, where do you go from here? 
Our obligation then is to know and to follow God's revelation. In John chapter 12, verse 48, Jesus said that he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Now, why is that? Well, the Hebrews writer told us already, because God has spoken through his son. We uphold the truth because it's the word of God. We also uphold the truth because it answers otherwise unanswerable questions. You ever ask the question, where did I come from? You know, people have always been concerned about origins. Many argue that all creation is the chance product of organic evolution and that life in all its forms came from non-living substance. But the Bible says that man is the product of God's creative design and power. In Genesis chapter 1, at verse 1, the very opening words of the Bible it says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Acts chapter 14 and verse 15, Paul says, We preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God, who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. In Romans 1 verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What one believes about origins is a matter of faith. But we must understand that faith in the Bible account is well-founded. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, it says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. Have you ever asked this question, what am I doing here? <laughs> you know, the, the question of purpose? Boy, that question has perplexed man for a long time. Some people answer it this way. They say, well, I'm here, you know, to amass as many things as possible. Well, that's nothing more than materialism. Some people think, well, wait a minute. No, I don't care about things. I want to indulge myself. You know, I, I want to live for pleasure. But that's nothing more than hedonism. Other people say, you know what? I need to be a good person. I'm here to love other people. I'm here to do good. And with nothing more than that, that's basically just a social gospel. What the Bible says is that we're here to glorify God and to prepare ourselves for eternity. As far as glorification of God goes, 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And as far as preparing for eternity... Revelation 22 verse 14 says, Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. 
You may not know exactly where you came from, but the Bible gives you a hint, at least. Gives you some substance. You, you may not know what you're doing here, but at least you have some guidance about how to commit yourself if, if you're going to serve God. But where are you going? You know, what's your future? Where are you headed? The matter of destiny is also a major concern. And answers in this age range from the idea that there's nothing beyond this life to the far-flung idea of reincarnation, which says that each spirit is reborn many times. The Bible says that man lives and dies physically only once. Hebrews 9 verse 27, It is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. And there's also the teaching that there's a destiny for all men. And that destiny, which is brought forth in the fruit of our eternal state, all of that's chosen in this life. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 says it as simply as any place in the Bible. It says, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Okay, so we're going to uphold the truth because it's the Word of God. We're going to uphold the truth because it answers otherwise unanswerable questions. And we're also going to uphold the truth because it presents a being who is worthy of our worship. You probably know this, that, that man is by his very nature incurab incurably religious. He has to have an object of worship. Every culture may have within it atheists or agnostics, but I'm telling you, every culture that has ever exist, existed, it actually had at its root, at its heart, a belief in some kind of God, some kind of greater power. Now, consider some of the things that man has worshipped. He's worshipped idols, heavenly bodies, animals, trees. In Romans chapter 1, verse 25, the scripture says, as pertains to those people, that they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. All of these kinds of gods... They are impotent. They are powerless. Isaiah 44 verses 9 and 10 says it about as well as any place. Those who make an image, all of them, he says, are useless. And their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a god or mold an image that profits him nothing. Who would do that? You know, if you knowingly serve something that that is is useless, what does that say about you? It is the psalmist says empty-headedness. The Bible, though, presents a being who is all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing, and is everywhere. He is therefore worthy of our worship. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, 
You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Jesus pictures God as one who's seeking people to worship him as he directs. In John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, but the hour is coming and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Contrarily, for those who hearts are, whose hearts are uncertain, Jesus, in this description, just kind of pleads. In Matthew 15, 8 and 9, these people, they draw near to me with their mouth, honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Though God is exalted and is worthy of worship, he's also pictured as one who is close to and in fellowship with his creation. He's made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Here's the truth. The church, the church serves as the pillar and the ground of the truth. So today, we're simply asking for people to obey God and to do as his word instructs. Jesus said it best in an illustration of Matthew 7, beginning at verse 24. He said, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. It's important for all of us, those of us who are committed to serving the Lord, to uphold the truth. There are a lot of reasons to do that, but I'm thinking some of these that we've talked about tonight ought to help us as we're setting our mind right to do the things that God expects the church to do. Thank you so much for tuning in this evening, and we'll look forward to seeing you again soon.